This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a Corolla built just for you. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Welcome back to Dealing Together. First caller? I bought three sweaters to get the fourth free. Oh, you got fleeced. Next caller? I traded my old Samsung at AT AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus and chose my plan. That's not a bad deal. It is not. Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus with Galaxy AI on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Offers vary by device. Subject to change. S24 plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash Samsung for details. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Hello and welcome back to Movie Mike's Movie Podcast. I am your host, Movie Mike, and today we are taking a look back at the top five interviews of 2022. What a year it's been for movies and what a year it's been for you guys supporting this podcast and seeing this podcast grow. And I just want to say thank you. And I also want to say that together we have really built something special here. And with the growth of this podcast comes interviews that I get to do now that I never thought would have been possible. And there were some really great moments throughout this year. So I wanted to share these top five with you. And if you missed any of these episodes, I encourage you to go back in the feed and check out these full interviews. So let's get into it. At number five is James Chinland, who is a name you may not know, but you definitely are familiar with his work. He is a production designer, and this year he worked on The Batman, which is one of my favorite movies of the year. And I like getting to learn about the behind the scenes of what goes into making a movie. And that is exactly what his job is as a production designer. It's creating the look and the feel and the aesthetic in the movie, and that's very important. And he has one of the most important jobs on the Batman, which would be creating the look of the Batmobile. So that was really cool to get to talk to him about that. A really interesting guy. So at number five is James Chinlin, production designer on the Batman. I obviously want to get into the creation of the Batmobile and the feeling of Gotham. But when you meet somebody for the first time, how do you describe what you do? The quick one is we're responsible for everything you see in the film, other than people and um, what they're wearing. You know, I think, you know, we're responsible for um, the set, the location, um, the props, the vehicles, the all of the feelings, uh, basically all of the space, the geography of the film. And that also entails like a ton of um, logistical stuff, like working with the cinematographer, figuring out, you know, is there room for the camera? How would this shot work? So it really, the thing I love most about my job is it touches all departments that basically we're sort of like the, the UN for the film. We have to 
go around and talk to each department and make sure their needs are being met and simultaneously also deliver like a, a cohesive piece of design for the movie um, that is, you know, in step and hopefully amplifying the narrative ambitions of the, the director. So starting with the Batmobile and, and the design and the look of it, does it start with like a sketch from Matt Reeves? Do you go back and research like all the Batmobiles that have been featured in other movies? Like where does the concept begin? Well, I think in, in our case, I think we were all led by Matt's take on Bruce and the fact that Bruce was a um, sort of a do-it-yourself sort of guy who had like turned his back on Wayne Industries and was sort of doing it all with his own hands. So I think we knew that the car needed to be something that you felt his hand on and and hopefully as an audience member you looked at it and you said you know if i had the right skill set i could probably build that car in my garage that was sort of like what we were hoping for so the idea that maybe he would use pieces of other cars and sort of kit bash them together you know sort of just taking what he needed and and assembling it so we really wanted you to see the way it was built and make sure that was a part of it and in terms of the access to that design i think you know, we were literally looking at fragments of cars and different pieces and, and details that we that we liked. And we sort of we knew the mission and what we wanted it to do. And then we leaned into some amazing illustrators um, into and, and got their help as we sort of started to hone it together into into a cohesive whole. And the Batmobile we see in the movie is it a fully functional vehicle? That's what we're most proud of. I mean, we built four. Uh, the team, I should say, built four Batmobiles, one fully electric um, and then three combustion engine cars. And they perform like crazy. I mean, all those stunts you see, you're actually seeing that car do it, you know. Um, and um, we're just no other Batmobile in history has performed the way our car did, you know, and the stunt guys were so excited to get their hands on it you know, put it through its paces. And I think it really shows in the chase. It's one of the most visceral mm -hmm. car chases I've ever experienced. And uh, yeah, I mean, Dom Tui, the special effects um, coordinator and his team just did an amazing job, um, you know, bringing that kind of raw visceral physicality to it. I think that's one of the most pivotal parts of the entire movie. That chase scene got me the most hype while watching the movie <laughs> and knowing that now that actually happened and actually went down just adds so much more to it and i think a lot of that is from robert pattinson's performance how much did he actually get to drive the batmobile before and how much does he actually do during the filming of the movie i mean he's in the car a lot whether he's actually controlling it or not there was a there was a um the guys built a uh what's called a pod car so rob's at the wheel and then there's a stunt driver like in a in a pod on the top on the roof who's actually doing it but you know in a way i think that <laughs> even speaks more to rob's bravery and intensity to be actually like driving in this car while someone else is actually putting you through all that stuff so um but he drove it a bit and um he certainly put it through his paces himself so and i think all of those things come through i think you feel that in the film you feel the sort of sweat and and um burning rubber and rain and all those things i think it really comes through in the final product did you get to drive it at all i did i did dream come true that's yes. amazing yeah i know i know i was so excited 
So the other thing about this movie that really just kind of grabbed me is that I feel like it's the best iteration of all the characters, but the character that I feel sometimes people don't really talk about is the city of Gotham itself. It has a presence in this movie that feels like like it's its own driving force. And I think a lot of that is due to the technology you guys use. I believe it's the LED volume screens. Yes. Like how how did that tech work to help the actors feel like they were more like involved in the scene and in that environment aside from just being behind like a green screen or a blue screen? It's fairly obvious, like um, the difference between, you know, um, staring at a piece of fabric and then looking out into a, you know, a city that's fully realized for you with like wind blowing and helicopters flying by and traffic. I mean, it was so exciting to be able to, um, you know, often as a designer, we'll design something and then hope that it comes together in post and we're at the premiere and we sort of see it all come together. But this was, you know, the first time in my career where I'd, I'd actually been able to design something and see it fully realized on camera during the shoot. And um, yeah, it was just so, so exciting to be able to bring all that together. Greg was obviously, you know, really leaning into the tools and making sure that you know, the scene we shot, sunset and dusk and dawn, you know, taking advantage of those low light opportunities. And I think the actors really felt it, you know, and I, I think it really came through in their performance. You also worked on the Avengers, which you've worked in D.C. and Marvel. And I believe you grew up in New York City. I did. So getting to design something like the Stark Tower, having growing up there and you know, knowing exactly like what the city layout is. How was that process of like, okay, I'm going to create something that's not actually here, but make it feel like it is in New York City? It's just like I pinch myself at the dream, dream come true of it all. You know, Stark Tower for me as a kid, I'd always looked at the Pan Am building. And um, I feel like what we did, whether we actually realized it or not, is going to live forever in the history of New York as a piece of architecture. That'll always be at least a footnote to that building's history that people will say, and it was used in Avengers and in this way. And so I think, you know, I mean, we're building architecture and worlds that live forever in people's imaginations, you know? And so I think in the same token, like going into Gotham and figuring out, you know, like I have this opportunity to carve out sort of a new space for the fans of Batman to, to dream. And, 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 um, you know, it's it, as a designer, it's, it's the greatest gift to be able to touch people in that way. And what is the next project you're working on? I don't know. I'm just working on getting <laughs> through these interviews today. Um, yeah, I don't know what's coming next. Are you always just like designing and making notes in your head of like you go out in public and maybe you see like a landscape or you see like a skyline that speaks to you? Do you always just keep like record of all those things, take pictures? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's 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 um, that's a designer's greatest resource is, you know, just um, the more you design, the more you are able to see in the world and details that you notice that maybe other people might cruise through. I think, you know, we tried to bring all that to the development of Gotham. You know, I think there's so much, so many things you don't see that are hidden in the shadows, but the team, you know, the level of detail that we brought to those sets, every square inch of the back lot and Riddler's apartment, you know, I mean, they, we went so deep. Any book you opened, 
you know, it was fully relevant to his past. So I think, yeah, we try as a designer, you try and just, you know, catalog the world and, and bring those feelings back to the film. Well, it was great talking to you, James. Really appreciate the you time. You too. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. At number four is Amy Brown of Holiday Harmony. And I've known Amy for a long time, back to my days of interning on The Bobby Bone Show and now working with her as the head writer over there. We see each other every day, but this is the first time we've sat down to do an episode of this podcast and I got to interview her as an actor. She got to make her acting debut and her movie is out now on HBO Max, Holiday Harmony, if you haven't seen it yet. But it was cool getting to learn and hear about my friend's dream come true. So here at number four is Amy Brown of Holiday Harmony. I am in studio now with Amy from Holiday Harmony. How are you doing? Oh, I'm Amy from Holiday Harmony. That is who you are. <laughs> Not Amy Brown or Amy from The Bobby Bone Show or Amy from Four Things. You are here as an actress today. I, I know. It's kind of crazy. So, well, I am an actress, but in the movie, I'm playing myself. But you still act in the movie. That is true. <laughs> I did have to act. I'm nervous because, well, you've seen it mm -hmm. and you're going to give a review. And I have to be honest with that. I have the same link that you have for a pre-screening and I can't bring myself to watch it. You haven't watched it yet. No, I can't decide if I just want to experience it Thanksgiving Day, like everybody else and watch it with my kids and everybody be there and then, you know, probably close my eyes whenever my scenes come on. Why do you think that is that you're so nervous to watch yourself back? Is it that you don't feel like you did a good job? You just cringe at the thought of seeing yourself <laughs> I, on screen? I think it's new to me. I have not ever done anything like this. And with the movie role, I was very nervous, but also excited. So I don't know if I'll be one of those people that just can't watch themselves on screen. Maybe I, I think part of it is, Mike, I wish I would have taken some acting lessons before. And then I would have gone in with a little more confidence. So you're saying you're used to being on a stage. Yes. You're used to talking to a microphone in the radio show. Yes. So for you, I feel like you're a natural performer. Like you can just walk into a room, you can start a conversation with anybody. You have that about you. When you felt and you were on set doing this movie, do you feel like that came out? There was like a switch in your brain? I tried to turn it on. I definitely told myself, okay, you're here. This is something that you've dreamt about, but never really thought would ever happen. That's what being in a, a Christmas movie is something that I just said I would enjoy one day, like that would be cool, but would I ever really do it? I don't know. And it would come up casually here on the show or in talking with friends. Oh, I would love to be the barista at the coffee shop where the two main characters fall in love or whatever <laughs> in the small mountain town and it's snowing outside. And I would have a small role just because those Christmas movies make me feel good. I love everything about them. I have since it's sort of, they gained notoriety on Hallmark and then Lifetime, I think, started making some. And then now they're everywhere. Netflix they're picks cool. them up. Yeah, H ours is on HBO Max, which is one of the coolest of the coolest places, I think, that there is to stream something. So there's more and more of them out there, which is awesome. But I have always loved them. And I know a lot of people have, but I think it's because how they make me feel. And they just feel, they're feel-good stories. I love the holidays. I love the coziness. I love the same storyline over and over and over. It's so predictable, but I don't care. Although Holiday Harmony took a different twist, especially with like the singing and the her career and kind of where she was going. I know bits and pieces because I read some of the script. Haven't watched it yet. <laughs> but I obviously know where she's coming from, what my, what my job was as her guide in a way in the bathroom. <laughs> that was my job. 
I had that one scene. That was a pivotal moment for her. So I knew I had to turn it on and show up and do my job. Even though it was exciting, I just still was nervous too. It's just all the things, Mike, all the things. I want to get back to your scene here in a bit, but you said this was always a dream of yours. Yeah. Was it an instant yes when the role was offered to you? When this opportunity came, was it an instant yes? Instant. I was over the moon. I don't. I didn't even know many details at all whatsoever. I think I heard, would you ever be interested in doing a Christmas? Yes. Yes, I would. I don't even think. <laughs> so before you knew like how much it paid, how much time commitment yeah. it was going to be, it was just automatic yes. Automatic yes. That's it. Like, I mean, there are, yeah, you didn't have to twist my arm. I just was thankful that it worked out with the show. Obviously, Bobby always works with us if we've got something cool going on, like he'll figure it out. But this was interesting too, because it was part of iHeartRadio. And one of our bosses in New York, Tom Pullman, was the one that was given the script. And so I guess I was probably shocked too that he read the script and then thought, oh, would Amy Brown be interested in this? And then Sissany from Ryan Seacrest Show, she's also considered. I think they wanted two females in radio. But that my name made the short list or the list or that I came to mind for him. But I was totally flattered and honored and said yes right away. So you get the part. How intimidating is it once you get your lines and you see how much you have to learn? Oh, I was studying it. I got out highlighters and pens and they said, you know, we'll have you'll have freedom to make it your own. But this is what we would like to see happen. But also when the cameras are rolling, if other things come out, that's okay. Don't feel like you have to stick just to this script. And there were some things where I it's like, oh, I don't know that I would say it this way. And so I would start just practicing it in the way that I felt most comfortable with, but also was still in their parameters. I didn't want to go completely rogue. Yeah. Well, I actually think that the the storyline or the the this scene or my part of the script should go like this. I didn't deviate too much, but I tried to make sure, especially since I was playing myself, that it sounded like something I would authentically say. I think that is what came across in your scene. And when you came on screen, I got really excited. (laughs) And then when you started acting, I was like, I know she is being Amy Brown right now, but I felt there was some genuine acting there. And I could see that. So I wondered if all of that was like the lines, like you said, or it was some of you adding in like how you would say it. Because that came across like perfectly. Well, so they needed my character to have an agent and to have an experience of having other people try to tell you who you're supposed to be in the spotlight. And that felt a little weird to me because I don't have an agent. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's where I struggled so that part was the the acting, the, I don't really think our, my position on the Bobby Bone show, no one's ever forced me to be anything that I'm not. So I felt very fortunate in that because I know that's not the case for a lot of people that have jobs, whether they're an on-air personality, they're on TV, they're on stage, performers, you know, they sometimes are put in really crazy positions where they're altering a lot about themselves or they feel like they have to change in a certain way. And so I was trying to tap into that of what would it really feel like if someone had ever told me I couldn't be who I was. And ultimately, that's what's happening with Gail. You know, she's suddenly doesn't even recognize herself and she doesn't feel good in her skin because she she wants to be Gail Trevor's up there. Yeah. And she's not able to be because of the label. And so that was that was what I had to tap into. That was the acting because, you know. You know, you've worked with me for years. We're not 
told you, oh, you need to be more (laughs) country, less country, more girly, less girly, which was my line. And I, I had, but I had to say to her, hey, I get it. I've been where you are. But I also know other pressures. So I tried to just think of those and what I would genuinely say to a coworker or anybody here on the show, if I ran into them in the bathroom, what what would I say to them? And that's sort of what that that scene was. I mean, we were literally in the iHeartRadio bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought that scene was great. And like you said, it was a pivotal moment in the entire movie. There was no way they could cut you out. <laughs> no. I mean, that I think was was my saving grace just in case I ended up being terrible. They would have to completely reshoot the scene with somebody else because the it changes the trajectory of what she does. So I'm curious about the filming process and all the different roles of the people on the movie. So when you get on set, what exactly does the director do? Do you get to meet with him? I do. He came up and introduced himself to me right away. And I, I, I don't know if this is on every set. It, it can't be because, you know, you hear horror stories. But every single person was so cool. And I was, I was a little bit shocked that multiple producers, directors, writers came up, shook my hand, knew my name, knew exactly what I was going to be doing. It was, it was set up that way even before I met them in L.A. because they were all on the emails. I could just tell they were very involved. And I'd be like, wow, I can't believe they're taking the time to email me right now. You would think they would have an assistant's assistant or somebody mm-hmm. doing it. I don't know. I just had this Hollywood image in my mind of what communication would look like. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it couldn't have been more personal. And so, yeah, super friendly staff, everyone. Even, you know, Lauren Swickard, she pulled me aside. She's one of the writers on it and a producer. She even has a few scenes in it as well. But she pulled me aside outside the bathroom before I went in. And she said, just... Say it to me now how you plan on saying it once you get in the bathroom. And I have to say, too, let me back up. Walking into the bathroom, the acting of just casually walking into the bathroom because I followed her. Yeah. I struggled with that. That's not even words. You're just having to walk in a room. It's supposed to be natural, but sometimes doing something natural on camera, like totally amplifies. Yes, because there's sound guys. There's camera guys. You're, you know, I I tried to be like, okay, just be cool. Be like you're walking into a bathroom. But I also was sort of putting myself in a situation. Nobody invited me to the bathroom. So I I knew I needed to be hesitant Mm -hmm. in my approach because it's not like I was just walking into the bathroom with a friend. I was walking in the bathroom as someone that picked up on something. My intuition picked up on something and I went in to be a guide. And so I had to kind of cautiously walk in. It's not like she's my best friend either. You know, I'm more of someone that she's just working with in the movie. So anyway, that walking was acting. So we'll see. I don't know if you picked up on any weirdness with my walking. I don't think it looked weird at all. Okay, good. It looked natural. Well, my bathroom lines outside of there, outside of the bathroom, Lauren Swickard went over them with me and she said, say them, say them how you plan on saying them. And so I did it. And she said, okay, that's good. But I want you to think about it this way. And I want you to try to use this tone. And then she would voice the tone to me of what, like softer, like almost, you know, less country, more country, more like a whisper. It's more like I was just talking them because I was or talking the lines out with a, with a friend. And she's like, you need to be more, I don't know, I can't even remember the words she used to describe it, but whatever she told me in that moment was so helpful. And having her mimic it, like her do it and then me mimic her was incredibly helpful. 
And that was right before we went in to film. And we filmed it probably, you know, four or five takes. And I don't know which ones they ended up going with or if they patched certain ones together. I don't know how it came together because, again, still haven't seen it. (laughs) Well, again, I think the scene was great. I think a lot of what I picked up on from your acting is that sometimes when I see early actors doing their work, it's very apparent that they're reading lines. And with you, it felt very natural. Like it was like you being you. And that came across. My jaw just dropped because you watch and critique movies, well, for a living, but even before you had this podcast, you did it for fun. Yeah. This is your pat, like movies are your thing. And so that really means a lot coming from you because you watch a lot of things and you're watching for things that I maybe wouldn't even ever see. I watched for that and I just wanted to see how you would do. And I was really surprised and really happy (laughs) for you. Like I got excited. And so now I wonder what what is next for you? Like what do you want to do with this? I know you've had this kind of moment of you're taking acting classes now and you had this kind of struggle of like, who am I? Like, what am I doing taking acting classes? Where is that going now? So I left LA. It was a whirlwind of a day. Every little experience on set from the trailer to the makeup to the lunchtime, which I'm sure some of that would die, die off the more you do it. But for me, it got it. We were not supposed to be there that long. I think it was supposed to be a four or five hour day. And we were there for so long. And when I left there, I was energized. And I I went to bed with just this extra pep in my step when I should have been exhausted. And so I just sat with that for a while. And what does that mean? And what could this mean? And, And the first thing that popped in my head when I was asking myself that is, well, maybe it means this is something that you would actually really enjoy doing and that would fill your cup up and bring you joy. And then that thought was immediately followed with another angel, devil, I don't know what you want to call it, but like the counterpart of my brain that's like, oh, but you could never do that. And why would you even think you can do that? And you're 41 years old. And But when I got into radio, I had never done radio either. And now here we are almost 17 years later, and I didn't want to keep myself from that. What if 20 years from now when I'm 61, I maybe have a few movies under my belt? Not, I don't. I don't know that I have this vision of me being some main character in any way, but just being a part of the process and that being another layer to creativity and something that I like to do. And I thought, so I thought about that. I thought about how I'd never done radio, but I gave it a go and it just took Bobby believing in me. And I, I feel like the Lauren Swickard in particular, she was on my podcast. The episode will go up this week on Thanksgiving day when when the movie comes out, it'll be on four things. But she, I feel as though she was genuine when she said, you you do have something. So, and apparently my name has come up in some meetings that they've had for other films. I don't know for what, because she didn't elaborate. But I don't think she would have said that out of nowhere. But it just gave me that extra little piece of validation. So anyway, all that to say, I wanted to be able to know that when I'm 60, at least I gave it a try. Maybe it works out, maybe it doesn't, and I don't have a few movies under my belt, but at least I'll know that I tried. And so that's when I decided to book acting lessons. Well, I can see it in you, and I hope you do another movie. Well, thank you, Amy, for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I could talk to you all day long if you can't tell. (laughs) I think you've tried to wrap me up like three times, and I'm like, so, Mike, what else (laughs) do you want to talk about? (laughs) We'll see you next time you do your next movie. Okay, yeah. Happy to come back. Let's See, do it. We're, ma- we're thinking positively. We're, we're thinking next role. We're manifesting that. Let's go.
Can I give you a real incentive to lean into your decision to start working out and eating better? I'm Carl, co-founder of Body. That's B-O-D-I. And right now, if you sign up for a one-year subscription to Body, I want to make you an offer you can't refuse. I'll give you 65% off. Look, I know it's not easy to get fit and lose weight, especially if you're trying to figure it out by yourself. But we make it simple. Just follow a program for 20 to 30 minutes day by day and lose 5 to 10 pounds a month. We have over 120 programs that have been tested and proven to work, and almost 300,000 five-star reviews in the App Store to prove it. Body also has complete eating plans and thousands of healthy, delicious recipes. So stop guessing and start seeing results with Body, and I'll give you 65% off your annual membership right now so you save big on the app that CNN underscored named Best Fitness App. So don't wait. Sign up for a year of Body and save 65%. Just go to Body.com. That's Body with an I dot com. This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Upgrade your home now at Blinds.com's anniversary sale. And celebrate savings up to 50% off premium window treatments for years to come. Shop for your house from the comfort of home for modern Roman and woven wood shades, shutters, motorized options, and more. 100% online. Blinds.com invented the better way to shop. No salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. You can do the measuring and installation yourself or have Blinds.com handle it. Unlimited windows for just one low cost. Our design experts can help you select the perfect styles to fit your home and your budget. Totally free. We'll even send you samples fast and free. At Blinds.com, you get upfront pricing with no hidden fees, free shipping, plus our 100% satisfaction guarantee. So raise a toast. To Blinds.com and make this an anniversary sale to remember. Shop Blinds.com's anniversary sale happening right now for up to 50% off. Save up to 50% at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. At number three is David Silverman, who is the director of The Simpsons movie, which is celebrating its 15th anniversary this year. And he was there from the very beginning, worked on the design and the look of The Simpsons back when it started on The Tracy Ullman Show in the 80s. And I am a huge Simpsons fan, have been watching the show my entire life, continue to watch it regularly. So this was a really cool opportunity for me to get to talk to somebody who actually works on the show and who directed the movie. So we got into all the nerdy stuff I wanted to know about, and I think you guys found it pretty interesting too, because it was one of the most downloaded episodes of the year, so thank you for that. Number three, here is David Silverman, director of The Simpsons Movie. David Silverman, how are you? I'm great. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. It's an honor to get to talk to you. You're just so much of an influence on The Simpsons and the design and the look. 
And I'm a huge Simpsons fan, and we want to get into talking about the 15th anniversary of the Simpsons movie. So looking at the show now, how long does a single episode of The Simpsons take from when it's written to when it comes to you? Like, how does it come to you? Well, it comes to us as a, generally speaking, it comes to us on a table read. That's the first time we get it. And I remember in the very beginning, too, that was my first experience. There was a table read for Bart the Genius. That was the first show I direct. And I remember thinking, this is the funniest thing ever written for animation at the time. I just thought this was, this is genius. So table read, it's about, it's about nine months. Nine months for one episode. There are a lot, but we have... You have, we, we, it's meticulous. You have the table read and then you have the storyboard process and then notes on storyboard. And then we do an animatic process. And that's a number of weeks of doing all the drawings for the animatic. We used to lay out the entire show basically um, before we decided to story reel the entire show, <laughs> save a lot of time and money that way. And then comes, you know, the finished animation and timing it and then going out to our Korean studio, either ACOM or Rough Draft Korea. And they take like 10 weeks to animate, finish, fill in the mostly, we we actually do a lot of animation. We do all those key posing, uh, heavily key posed our shows. Uh, And, um, uh, but it takes them 10 weeks to finish it up and paint it. It used to be painted on cells, you know, and, uh, but now it's digitally painted, but still takes the same length of time. It's still time consuming. So you're uh, saying nine months for one episode, but you're working on several different episodes. I mean, the whole season. How in the world yeah. do you get an entire season well, done like that? All I can tell you, it takes a chunk of time. Yeah. And what it is, is like, okay, here's this timeline for, let's say, the first episode of the season, right? And then here's the next episode, and here's the next episode, and here's the next episode. So they're staggered, right? So uh, one director is working on this, and our second director is working on this with his, you know, animation team and so forth. And then we have, you know, we have designers that work on all the shows basically at all the times. So there's, imagine it, it's like with different moving trains, you know, but they're all a week apart. <laughs> and they leave the station, and then the film arrives here and then they come back on a weekly basis oh that's why we start in march so we start the process of storyboarding in march to make our times for the next you know for for the fall season uh and we have like seven episodes six to seven episodes for the previous schedule to sort of give us a head start onto the next season as as we went through in uh, uh season after season we started building up oh we have two additional episodes so that gives more of a a um a break to get to you know to allow the uh the process to continue and then it then somehow and i can't remember how we got it up to but we had like like six what we called holdover episodes so we do 22 episodes a year and like 17 is usually the last show that'll be broadcast uh that year in may and the following you know uh six or seven episodes will be for the following season and they'll head the beginning of the season and, you know, so forth and so on. It keeps rolling on, man. So looking now back at the movie, it's been 15 years since the Simpsons movie, which you directed the movie. How does that process begin of going from just, all right, we're going to make this one episode to making this full feature that's never been done before? People often ask us, why didn't you do another one? Well, the Simpsons movie damn near damn near killed us because it's not like we had another team of people. We did expand to some extent, you know, for to do the movie, but we had a lot of the people that work on the show also working on the movie simultaneously. Now, some, some kind of like I had, I had four um, sequence directors 
two were not on the show, uh, or well, they had been on the show. Rich Moore and Lauren McMullen had been on the show be- previously. Rich had been working um, on Futurama at the time, I think. Yeah, <laughs> it's hard to like <laughs> put everything together. But in any event, and then we had two other who were working on the show, uh, Mike Anderson and uh, Steve Moore. And those, they were my four uh, sequence directors because we were, that was one way we got it done so fast is I had, I had, you know, I had field generals because <laughs> it was, we had to do everything at once, all in a great big box. So I had to delegate quite a bit in that respect, but, uh, and still look, and still make it look like it was dealt from one hand because, you know, it's a movie. But we started, the writing started, I think they really got started in like 2003. And by 2005, there was a table read in the summer of 2005. We really got, it started storyboarding in 2006. We did it rather fast when you think about it, because we started in the production in January of 2006. And we basically got it done under like 15 months, you know, which is pretty fast considering it's a feature. And pretty fast because a lot of stuff we did was thrown out the window. <laughs> we had to start over on a lot of Act One. But um, I don't know. I guess we all had, you know, um, they're all pretty seasoned people. And we got other people uh, involved, too. Uh, uh, this guy, uh, Steve Markowski, who did a great job. He was almost like a like a fifth uh, uh, sequence director. He did a lot of great board work for me. I mean, that's how we got things done. We just kind of plowed through it and uh we were still drawing on paper at the time we hadn't gone digital although i started um working on cintiq tablets you know the wacom cintiq tablet where you take a stylus and you draw directly onto the screen and that kind of got the attention of our um uh was president gracie films uh richard sakai he's like oh this is the way to go and i say absolutely this is where this is the way to go we started boarding we started buying cintiqs for the the board artists which made things very much go faster because the the story was mercurial in many respects and <laughs> things kept changing uh particularly uh, uh the character of cargill originally he was like this kind of kind of like a sad sack you know uh head of the epa who was like you know miserable because he was so was not respected and then this thing happens in springfield and he's given all this power and resources that storyline wasn't working because you know we were like we're doing the simpsons movie it should be about the simpsons and we're concentrating this character we've never heard of before voiced by albert brooks who's just like kind of a semi-regular on the simpsons but still not very entertaining so that's when we kind of pitched that all out and said okay for a hot second we actually thought hank scorpion would be the head of the epa and that was <laughs> then tossed out rather quickly uh and albert brooks actually he was a, he was one of the people who said that doesn't work for me and you know albert brooks Though doing the voice is also, you know, a very accomplished comic uh, uh, director, so his his instincts are worth listening to. But he basically did a Scorpio type of character, you know, an aggressive. It's as if Donald Rumsfeld ran the EPA, you know, and that was sort of like the 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 uh, the idea behind it. So you're saying the first movie almost killed you guys. So should we not expect a sequel anytime, like ever in our lifetime? Oh, I think that I, 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 I never say never. You know, it's like one of these things that that will uh, that will that will happen uh, possibly. I can't go record saying it's going to happen, and it's not. I can't go record saying it's not going to happen because I can't go on record saying anything. Got it. <laughs> I can't give you no scoop because you know what? I don't know. <laughs> so I was rewatching the movie and. 
obviously you're able to do now in this movie things you couldn't do on TV. But I wonder, was there a meeting about how to draw Bart Simpson's wiener? Yeah. <laughs> I don't think there was a meeting of meeting about that, but uh, I, I sort of did it. Uh, I went for it tastefully enough so we would get away with it. You know, let's put it that way. And we were really, really, really worried that that was going to be a problem from the censors. I mean, we didn't know what we were going to do. We figured we'd get away with it with European audiences, but we just <laughs> did not know how it was going to react. And to this day, I'm grateful for the <laughs> the ratings board for apparently actually their rating was i think it was was it pg or pg-13 i think rated pg-13 for adult humor throughout i think that was their rating <laughs> which was like almost a mini review which was very flattering to us yeah it was it was a lot of work let's put it that way it, it was it was a lot of work but i i remember at one point it's <laughs> like this is a lot of work but hey you wanted to do this so let's let's enjoy it so i did it throughout all the work and the and stressful times i did enjoy myself i think and i think at the end of the day everybody else even though it was a lot of work enjoyed themselves too certainly we enjoyed the way it came out and certainly enjoyed the way it was responded to well thank you so much hope you have a great rest of your day thank you thanks all very much all right have a good one Take care everybody bye Can I give you a real incentive to lean into your decision to start working out and eating better? I'm Carl, co-founder of Body. That's B-O-D-I. And right now, if you sign up for a one-year subscription to Body, I want to make you an offer you can't refuse. I'll give you 65% off. Look, I know it's not easy to get fit and lose weight, especially if you're trying to figure it out by yourself. But we make it simple. Just follow a program for 20 to 30 minutes day by day and lose 5 to 10 pounds a month. We have over 120 programs that have been tested and proven to work, and almost 300,000 five-star reviews in the App Store to prove it. Body also has complete eating plans and thousands of healthy, delicious recipes. So stop guessing and start seeing results with Body, and I'll give you 65% off your annual membership right now so you save big on the app that CNN underscored named Best Fitness App. So don't wait. Sign up for a year of Body and save 65%. Just go to Body.com. That's Body with an I.com. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features, like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back, enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Are you self-conscious about your smile due to stains? Have you ever wished that you had a whiter and brighter smile? Smile Actives is a safe and affordable alternative to expensive whitening procedures. You simply add Smile Actives gel to your toothpaste every time you brush your teeth, making it the easiest teeth whitening solution out there. In a clinical trial, Smile Actives users reported up to five shades whiter on average, all within seven days. No change to your routine, no extra time. Right now, they are running a buy one, get one offer. 
Hurry to smileactives.com slash iHeart today to receive this special offer with free shipping and handling. At number two was one of the warmest people I've ever talked to over Zoom. It is Sean Astin. You would know him as Rudy. You would know him from the Goonies. You would know him as Sam in The Lord of the Rings. And that is what he was on to talk about, the 20th anniversary of that movie. He's an actor who's been a part of all of these iconic movies. So getting to speak to him about one of the biggest movies of all time was a real treat. So at number two, here is Sean Astin. Mike! How's it going? Good. And it's so great to talk to you. I feel like I've been watching you my entire life and now the Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring, celebrating his 20th anniversary. What does it feel like to be a part of a franchise that'll just be viewed for generations and generations to come? Mike, it's good to see you. Finally, our moment has come. Yes. What is it like to be part of the generation? It, it is, um, well, it just feels like there's something no one can ever take away from you that's really special, you know? I mean, I got a degree in, when I was I got my undergrad degree before making this movie, and that feeling when you're when they you hand you the diploma and, you know, you're wearing the cap and gown and you're like, man, this is, even if I totally fail in life, at least I accomplish this. That's what it feels like. <laughs> it feels like there is, you know, and it really capped off when it won the best picture, when uh, Return of the King won best picture in the, in 2004, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And uh, you just felt like, you know, world culture will forever recognize this as an important contribution. And, and I have a, you know, meaningful part of it. And it just feels like, you know. I, immortality is that too? Yeah. Did I over? I overreach gonna, with immortality. I didn't mean to overreach. You're going to live forever through this movie now. <laughs> well, until somebody figures out how to scrub all the digital bytes uh. from the, but but, uh, but no, yeah, it definitely it definitely feels like um, you know. Per, there's I don't know what permanence is in this world anymore. You know, my love for my wife and my children is permanent. Uh, you know, no matter what happens to me, no matter where I go, it's permanent. And they're there's something about inhabiting this world of Middle Earth that just transcends normal, normal. It just transcends normal. It's more, you know, it's like in uh, it's like in Spinal Tap. It's it's 11. It's 11. So what was the most grueling part about filming that movie? The first one being fat. I had to I was I was one hundred and twenty five hundred and thirty pounds. I just run the L.A. Marathon mm-hmm. and, uh, and I get this. You know, you're going into place to read for Samwise Gamgee and I get the books out and I'm reading through it. And it's like, you know, fat, portly hobbits, but not too whatever. And I'm like, what? <laughs> you know how long it took me to get in shape. So, of course, it's not very difficult to uh, when your weight goes up and down to get back into the fat mode. And I, I don't mean to be, dis, you know, disrespectful, but it's it's hard. It's really hard to be to be heavy. And in my life, my weight goes up and down in kind of like four to six month cycles. Mm-hmm. So six months of being, I'm not kidding this. You want to know that's what the hardest part was for me. I mean, the, the hours were hard, the, the, you know, carrying that stupid backpack around, you know, and chafing your neck and getting cut a loom fell on my head and knocked me out. I got a big cut on my foot. I, you know, there was, there was a lot of stuff, but like, I honestly think I suffered like real, I suffered, um, you know, I suffered. So with, with that, and I remember looking in the mirror and being like, Oh my God, I can't get back in shape right now. And at one point I just, my makeup artist and I, Jeremy and I, we went to the tennis club. There's like a tennis gym you could go to. And we got into it. We were like playing every day for a week or something. We were just having so much fun. And just that your neurons, when you wake up after not being physically active for a while. And then somebody from the news, the Wellington, whatever the the national newspaper is, took a picture of me coming out of the 
say this is before the internet. This is before we had really, the movies were known by anybody. And on the front page of the national newspaper is me, like with a towel over my shoulder coming out of the gym. And when I, and my heart sank when I saw it. And I walk into the set the next day and Peter Jackson is there with the paper open and he does the slow turn and he looks at me and I look at him and he's like, uh, they call candy lollies. Okay. He's like, More lollies for Mr. Aston, please. <laughs> and he was only partly kidding. So like having to maintain fat Sam. And so like when Gollum says stupid fat hobbits, you know, I'm like, F you, dude. <laughs> so your book club at Fable is also celebrating the 20th anniversary of the movie. And you can go to fable.co slash Sean Astin to be a part of that. Have any of your original Lord of the Rings co-stars still not read the original books? Well, there's a major uh, publication today. I believe it's Vanity Fair uh, with my uh, colleague uh, Elijah Wood on it. And the the cap, the the banner is I still haven't read the books. Oh, so he still hasn't did the whole so movie. I, so I feel now like I used to joke. And the, the amazing thing is he has a better command of the story than I do. And I've read him three times. Now, that's not a joke. He I, I every time I read them. So here's this is this is the version I'm going to you can read it digitally on Fable.co. But the, I'm going to read this one. And I was reading it on the plane back from Atlanta last night. And uh, uh, Billy Boyd, he he's going to I think he came in on, on our Zoom yesterday. I think he's going to join the journey. So I'm going to text Elijah after our interview and I'm just going to be like, Hey man, we're doing a chapter a week. Of course, he's going to be a new father for the second time. He'll probably be like, I'll read two words and fall asleep. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, it, what can I say? What can I say? He's um, I was always asking, I would finish. I read the books cover to cover three times while we were filming. And I didn't really enjoy it in the sense of like disappearing into the world. I was just like, data mining i was just plumbing it for like what can i know what can i know and and i would i'd finish you know like a big chunk of it in beautiful new zealand with the countryside you know the mountains and whatever and we'd go to the set and i'd look at the script and i'd ask elijah to explain what was happening and he would know he'd be like well this is what's going on he would so yeah he gets a get out of jail free card for me <laughs> well i appreciate the time it was great to talk to you mike you be well brother all right have a good one can I give you a real incentive to lean into your decision to start working out and eating better? I'm Carl, co-founder of Body. That's B-O-D-I. And right now, if you sign up for a one-year subscription to Body, I want to make you an offer you can't refuse. I'll give you 65% off. Look, I know it's not easy to get fit and lose weight, especially if you're trying to figure it out by yourself, but we make it simple. Just follow a program for 20 to 30 minutes day by day and lose 5 to 10 pounds a month. We have over 120 programs that have been tested and proven to work, and almost 300,000 five-star reviews in the App Store to prove it. Body also has complete eating plans and thousands of healthy, delicious recipes. So stop guessing and start seeing results with Body, and I'll give you 65% off your annual membership right now so you save big on the app that CNN underscored named Best Fitness App. So don't wait. Sign up for a year of Body and save 65%. Just go to Body.com. That's Body with an I.com. This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. 
style. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. And at number one is Chris Sanders, who is the creator of Lilo and Stitch and the voice of Stitch. And Lilo and Stitch is my all-time favorite Disney movie. And this all came together because I saw him do a TikTok where he was talking about how he created the movie. And I knew once that 20th anniversary was up, I had to get him on the podcast. And not only was this my favorite interview of 2022, but my favorite interview out of this entire time that I've been doing this podcast. And I think that's because it is my favorite Disney movie, but he's just a really easy guy to talk to and had a lot of great stories. So at number one, the creator of Lilo and Stitch and the voice of Stitch, here is Chris Sanders. So you're working at Marvel and I saw that you said that you had the first drawing of Stitch in 1981. What about that story? What about that sketch made you come back to it years later when you finally get this opportunity to create this story for Disney? I had worked a little bit on it in private. I wanted to do a children's book. And what I realized after working on it for a while in private, you know, on my own time, was that the story was too big to fit into a normally formatted children's book. I didn't think I could boil this thing down to say 17 pages or 32 pages. It just seemed too big. Um, so the idea was bigger than the book. Um, so years later, I was in the waning days of the production of Mulan. We made that film at the Florida studio. So I was out in Florida and the president of feature animation at that time, Tom Schumacher, was out visiting. And um, he and I and everybody had gone through a lot making this film. It had been quite the adventure. I think that my performance on that film had earned me, <laughs> had earned me a certain amount of, I guess, latitude to maybe do my own movie. And Tom was out visiting uh, Florida and he said, is there anything that you would want to do next? And pretty much right there at dinner, I said, oh, no, no, not. A well, wait a minute. Okay, you know, there is this one thing. There was this story, right? And so I was able to think about it for a little bit. And the next time he visited, he said, well, and I was trying to work up a pitch for it, you know, and, and, uh, and he said, well, go ahead and just tell me about it. And I said, well, I'm not really ready. And he goes, no, just come on, just do it. You know, and I thought, oh. Here it goes. Here goes my <laughs> idea. I'm going to, I'm going to like, it's, it's going to be all over the next, like in the next three minutes. And I pitched it just verbally threw it out there. And I really got my very first and biggest note of all, which was the story that I had concocted was all about this strange little creature who was living in a forest and he didn't, he had come from, he was a mystery to everything around him, but he was also a bit of a mystery to himself. And the story was all about how he was figuring out who he was. And he was frightening looking a bit of a monster. Right. And Tom said, I like this story, but I would have a suggestion. The animal world is in a sense already alien to us. So placing this alien being in the animal world doesn't get you the kind of contrast that you might want. I would suggest you place this monster in the human world. Boom. There it was. I thought that was a great idea. So that was the first biggest note that Lilo and Stitch ever got. Now, this is before it was Lilo and Stitch, before they were in Hawaii. That was when I left and started working on the idea 
once I returned to California. And that's where I got, I got this uh, uh, motel room out in Palm Springs at this resort. And I locked myself in this room for three days. And all I did was draw and write because I wanted to create a bit of a document because it was going to be about an alien. And I thought, you know what? Those are the days where people were making a lot of monstery kind of alien movies. And I thought, if you say the word alien in a development meeting or a pitch, a lot of people are going to get this instant idea of what an alien is. And I thought, okay, if I don't draw this, they're going to get maybe the wrong idea. So if I draw this whole thing out and they say no to it, at least they're saying no to the idea that was my idea. So it's a legitimate no. <laughs> so, um, so after those three days, what occurred to me was that in a sense, I had finally created that children's book that I had tried to create so many years before and had abandoned. That's really interesting to me because I was re-watching it and I realized how hard it must have been to pitch an idea about this alien creature. Doesn't really say a whole lot of words. So to hear you say that you took that idea, placed it into Hawaii, and suddenly it made sense. I, you know, this is where you've really got to understand like how important a producer and the head of a studio are to your future. They can make or break a, an idea. And in this case, Tom Schumacher, he wanted to make this film. And um, he that was the next big thing was that it's a, it's a thing I'm going to put on a TikTok uh, really soon, and I'm working on that one right now. He told me after the development department looked at it that they all like universally liked the idea. And he said, I walked into his, office, uh, into his office and he said, I will make this film on one condition, that it look like you drew it. And that was, you know, very exciting and flattering. But at that point, I, I didn't even know what to do because I thought, well, what do I even draw like? I just draw like everybody else. A girl who was working at the studio, Sue Nichols, who was an amazing artist, she also came from CalArts, she did a two-week analysis of my art style. And she created two documents called Surfing the Sanders Style, and it explained how I drew. Well, nobody was more interested to read these than I was, and I was absolutely fascinated. It turns out there were things that were governing my style that existed that I didn't really even realize I was doing. But she saw them and she had like dissected the whole thing. So that began. And that's one of the reasons that Lilo and Stitch is a highly unusual film. It is more unusual than people really, I think, may, may realize. Because it is not only a very Miyazaki-style story that is extremely hard to nail down. You know, it's a smaller story. And it's really you know, kind of strange, based very, very much on quirky, unusual characters, really, you know, these personalities are the, are the whole movie, but also that it's in an individual artist's style. And that's, I don't think that's anything that has happened really before or since, at least with an artist inside the studio. They've based films on, say, like Isaac, uh, Isaac um, Ivan Durrell. Uh, Sleeping Beauty is based very much on Ivan Durrell, for example. Um, but he was an outside creator. So it's one of the reasons that that's such an unusual film. So when do you sit down to create what is going to be Lilo and Stitch. You have to create Lilo. When does it get that title? When does it get that final art? It was Lilo and Stitch by the time it was in that first pitch book. So when I went away to Palm Springs, by that point, I had made the decision to place the film in Hawaii. I had named the characters Lilo and Stitch, and I had no connections to Hawaii at that point. So I pulled Lilo's name off of a roadmap that I had from Hawaii. There's a Lilo lane, and I saw that. So this is one of those strange things. I didn't know what that word meant. It sounded like a name. It turns out it's not a name, but it's the it's the word for lost. So 
in a really strange way, I found the right word to make that her name. Um, the same with Nani. I just, I again, I, I looked around for names on a roadmap. Later on uh, in the making of the film, we did engage as many people as we could from Hawaii because we're talking about it. We're trotting into a culture that we are not part of. And if you're going to do that, you really have to connect with people that know what the deal is, that know what they're doing for the music, for the culture, for the dialogue, for your voices as much as you can. So, um, and so we did, we, we met a, a huge number of people who became our guides to making the film um, be respectful. Going into the start of making this movie, at what point did you become the voice of Stitch? Were you always going to be Stitch or was that a voice that just existed in your head? Where did that come from? It's sort of both. It was a, it was a voice that I had used up to that point to call people on the telephone with and annoy them. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it was actually Dean, my co-director. So uh, along the lines of your last question, one of the first things you do is you find a co-director that you trust. And I had learned to trust Dean and to, part and to partner with Dean during the making of Mulan. And Dean was extremely smart and amazing, a natural when it came to storytelling. He was a natural storyteller, a great writer, a wonderful story artist. Um, and he has very good structural knowledge and structural instincts. So, uh, so I partnered with him immediately. Um, as soon as we decided to do the project, I, I saw him out and we, we agreed to co-direct. Uh, on the film, Dean suggested that I be the voice of Stitch. One of the main reasons was that we wanted originally we didn't want Stitch to even speak. We were like, oh, he's going to be like Dumbo. We'll do the whole film, and he will just be a character that works in pantomime. Later on, it became obvious that he was going to have to speak, and in fact, he would have some key lines during the film. Well, at that point, we thought, okay, we're going to we're going to have to get a voice, but you don't want to necessarily hire somebody like Robert Redford or Danny DeVito and then worry about like, well, how's the studio going to react when they realize this character only says like 15 things? And will <laughs> they then start to push for like, well, if he's, you know, if we're going to hire Robert Redford, we want to, you know, we want Robert Redford. We want like a lot of lines. And we were afraid that that might begin to really be the tail that wagged the dog as far as the, the making of the film. So Dean suggested, he's like, you know what? Why don't you just do the voice? You use that voice when you pitch your boards. So why don't you just do it? And then we'll avoid any problem because, you know, you're not a real actor. So, <laughs> so nobody's, no one's going to ask for more of you, right? So we did do that. And there came a moment, there was only one moment that I felt a little stressed about it. And that was uh, when we realized that near the very end of the film, Stitch would have this one very important line where he talks about this family that he found and mm -hmm. it was little and it was broken, but it was still good. And that verged on real acting. And so I thought, I don't know if I can do this. On that day, I came to Dean and I said, today I'm an actor and you're going to be the director, the, the only director. And I'm going to go in that booth and you tell me what to do and I'll do it. And if I can't pull this off, then we'll find somebody else to do the voice. And so we did. Like Dean directed me. I did everything he asked. And before long, he said, okay, I think we got it. And I said, are you sure? And he said, yeah, I think we got it. And it, it worked okay. You brought up my favorite scene in the entire movie. I think it's because of that. It's that moment in the movie where everything kind of hits me emotionally. And I, I remember watching it as a kid and having that same kind of feeling of stitch of being that person who was filled with rage in a place that he didn't understand, didn't understand himself, but all of a sudden he had this family now. I think that's the most perfect scene in any Disney movie I've seen. So it's cool how that came together and how you had to go dig out your acting abilities in that. <laughs> <laughs> I did my best. I really tried hard that day. I, I still remember that day. This is my family. I found it all on my own. This little 
and broken, but still good. Yeah, still good. So when people find out you're the voice of Stitch, do they immediately ask you to do it? I do get asked to do it a lot. <laughs> it was a there were, I had some surgery on my neck at one point, period of time, about a year I couldn't do it. But then I got back to doing it and uh, I still do it. I get called up about at least once a month to come in and do, I do voices for toys and for like parades things for cruise ships, all Disney stuff. It's fun. I told myself if I ever had you on the podcast, I would show you my voice. And it's actually that scene that I do. So I would like to let you hear this and then judge my abilities afterwards and let me know how I can make it better, all right? Okay. All right, so it's that scene. This is my family. I found it all on my own. It's little and broken, but still good. Yeah, still good. How's that? Oh, that's really good. <laughs> that's very nice. How do you get the laugh though? Because I've been trying this impression for a while, but that laugh is in like it's hard to do. The big laugh is painful. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is one. If you're doing a recording session, you save that for the very end. Like, okay, we'll save all the screaming and the laughs for the end, and then we'll do. We'll do. Then you can just take it to the wall, and if you blow your voice out, you're fine. Back to the it being the 20th anniversary of the movie. When you go back. And remember the entire making of that movie. What moment sticks out to you as being like, that was the most fun part of the entire process? I mean, the part of the process that I've always loved is music. Dean and I, and Lilo and Stitch was a big part of this, have really, I've always loved music and, and I listened to music. I have never written a scene in a movie without listening to music while I worked on that scene. I have also boarded uh, pieces of movies to music and there are still there are still pieces of music that if you play them while you watch a piece of a Disney movie, it lines up pretty much exactly. Um, like if you go to the soundtrack for a movie called the mission, there's a, there's a track from that. I believe it's, I believe the track is the mission. And um, if you listen to that, while you watch the scene where Mufasa's ghost speaks to Simba, it works really, really well because that's the, that's the music I, I listened to when I boarded the scene and I pitched that scene to the directors with that music. There are scenes in Beauty and the Beast. I can show you the, the music that those were done to. So anyway, so same with Lilo and Stitch. I would listen to music as I write these scenes. And nothing was more exciting to us than we would when we would partner with somebody like Alan Silvestri, who is going to be writing the score. And uh, one of the things that Dean, Lilo and Stitch was made for a lower budget than movies were being made for at the time. We felt we could buy our story freedom by lowering the budget, which is exactly what happened. But one of the things that both Dean and I told the producers and asked the studio, carve off enough money to buy the best score money can buy. And we will make the film for whatever is left over. And that's exactly what they did. So we got Alan Silvestri. And there was this really important day um, where we were looking at the boards and Alan Silvestri was looking at the whole film on board and looking at the outline. And he said, I really like this movie. And he had a few suggestions, but he said, there's one thing I didn't see. I didn't see the moment where Stitch turns from bad to good because Stitch is a villain that becomes a hero. And that was what the base, that was really the basis of the whole story. He's the first, and I think at this point, still the only Disney villain who then becomes the hero of the story. And Alan was like, well, where does that happen? And both Dean and I at that point were like, oh, well, yeah, we tried to write it. We couldn't really figure it out. And it sort of happens here, kind of between these two shots. And suddenly both Dean and I, I think, were confronted with the reality that we hadn't really been able to put it up there on the boards. And I'll never forget what, what Alan said. We, we basically told Alan we didn't know how to do it. And he said, put it on screen and I'll do it. And I guess we were saying we couldn't, we didn't know how to say it. 
And he said, put it on screen and I'll say it. And he said it with music. And so there's a moment where Nani realizes that they can't retrieve Lilo and she's crying and Stitch is watching her. And if you listen, there's a subtle change in the music and Stitch walks up to her and he speaks to her. And that's the moment of change. And what we realized at that point was that music does the heaviest lifting of all when it comes to story. And music is unassailable. No one's going to laugh at music. You can you can throw an awkward line in or an awkward shot and it gets an inadvertent laugh and you've kind of blown it, but nobody laughs at music. And um, so Alan just like taught us such an incredibly important lesson that day. And we really took that to heart. So later on, when Dean and I were working on How to Train Your Dragon, one of the first things we do now is we carve out a house for music in different places in the film. So in How to Train Your Dragon, in that scene where uh, Hiccup is going to um, bond and 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 um, he's going to cross this divide and form a connection to this dragon. No dialogue. It's all music, and we just no, the characters shut up. <laughs> all the characters shut up, and music takes over. And that's just something that Dean and I really believe in now. And we learned that on Lilo and Stitch. It's amazing to see that all come together, and I can't wait to see what comes next. And hopefully. I'll get to talk to you again once that comes around. I really appreciate the time. Absolutely. If you ever want to do a follow-up, I'm so sorry we were late on this because oh, we got our time zones mixed up. <laughs> but yeah, let's do that. That would be fantastic. I really enjoyed chatting with you so much. Well, thanks, Chris. Have a good day. You too. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Talk to you soon. And there you have it. Those are the top five interviews from Movie Mike's Movie Podcast for 2022. Thank you for being a part of this podcast. Thank you for being a part of the Monday Morning Movie Crew. This has been a really great year for the podcast as we continue to grow here and go into another year. I have some actors and some directors on my list as bucket list interviews. There are a lot of great movies coming out in 2023, so... There's a possibility some of those happen. I'm always working hard to bring you guys the best content. So thank you for being so supportive. And if you haven't at this point, please subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Tag me in your Instagram stories. I love reposting you guys over there. So just thank you for another awesome year. I will talk to you next week here on the podcast. And until then, go out and watch good movies. Later. No one likes to talk about money. Am I saving enough? Can I buy a house? Am I paying too much in taxes? Will I be able to retire? What if you could unlock insights about your finances in less than five minutes with a clear picture of where you stand today and where your money can work harder? Now you can. Visit facet.com to take the free quiz and get your financial wellness score today. That's F-A-C-E-T.com. This ad is sponsored by Facet. Facet Wealth Incorporated is an SEC registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander. With seating for up to eight passengers and available panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with the whole family. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Are you self-conscious about your smile due to stains? Have you ever wished that you had a whiter and brighter smile? Smile Actives is a safe and affordable alternative to expensive whitening procedures. You simply add Smile Actives gel to your toothpaste every time you brush your teeth, making it the easiest teeth whitening solution out there. 
In a clinical trial, SmileActive's users reported up to five shades whiter on average, all within seven days. No change to your routine, no extra time. Right now, they are running a buy one, get one offer. Hurry to SmileActives.com iHeart today to receive this special offer with free shipping and handling.